everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. How are you today? Good. My name's Emily, and I'm one of the pastors here at Discovery, and we're going to continue in our villain series, our villains of the Bible. And um, when I was younger, probably like the majority of everyone, I consistently cheered for the good guys in movies, in books, in um, newspapers, and I paid no attention to the bad guys because in my mind they were bad and they could always be bad and they could never be good. Does anybody else have that experience? Yeah, all the time, right? But now as I've gotten older and as I've watched more movies and seen more bad guys and more good guys, I find the bad guys so, so interesting because I want to know what their motive is. I want to know what drove them to do the things that they did. I want to get inside their brain and to try to figure out okay, why did you get to this place that you were at? And what happened before then? And what will happen to you um, with the next action that you take in your life? And I think a lot of it started off when I saw the movie Joker. Have anyone, has anybody seen it? Yes. Two people, awesome. Three people, yes, okay. So does everybody know who Joker is? Good job. All right. Very proud. So Joker, um, he's the villain in Batman, right? And Joker, he has the clown face. He looks really creepy. He's got green hair. He's dressed in a purple suit. You would not want him to watch your kids or you wouldn't want to have lunch with him. You probably just wouldn't want to talk to him. He's not a super great guy. But in the movie Joker, I remember just feeling this emotion for him, like I just wish that I could just give him a big hug. And don't get me wrong, it starts off really bad, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and there's not much good that comes out of this movie. It's very sad, and I'm pretty sure that I cried a lot in the movie, but I saw where Joker came from. His parents weren't in his life. Um, His medication, he wasn't able to get it because he couldn't pay for it, and his insurance wasn't allowing him to have the medication that he needed. His mental health, it was really bad. Um, When you see the Joker, his laugh is very famous, and in the movie, it's actually portrayed as a response to, like, a PTSD moment. Like, oh my gosh, that changed my perspective on him. And his job, he didn't really like his job and he got bullied at his job. So all of the cards in life seem to be stacked against him. And I'm not making an excuse for Joker because he killed a lot of people, made a lot of bad things happen, but I can see the psychology behind where he got there. Does that make sense? I also have been getting into true crime podcasts My friends Alex and Kelsey have helped me with that. I listened to this podcast, it's called My Favorite Murder, and um, they made this podcast because they have high anxiety about life and about getting hurt, and so they like to celebrate the fact that they don't get murdered each day. So they create this podcast, talk about their um, most interesting murders that they have found out about, and then they discuss it, like what's the motive, what's going on. The last episode that I listened to, it was about a guy called the Pizza Bomber. So he was a pizza delivery guy, super nice, non-threatening at all. He ends up robbing a bank. 
And the reason behind him robbing this bank, he just goes into a bank, he passes the clerk a note, says, hey, give me your money. It's like $6,000 or something. And he goes, I have a bomb on my back. This is not a joke. And I feel like he probably wouldn't need to explain that it wasn't a joke because I think normal people wouldn't say that there's a bomb on your back and make it a joke at a bank. It's not socially acceptable. So bank gives him the money. He takes a sucker, starts eating the sucker, and just walks out. It's on camera. Like, how weird of a response is that? He wanted the money. He teamed up with two other people because he had an escort girlfriend that he couldn't afford. And in order to stay in that relationship, he needed money. And this guy truly believed that they were in love. He believed that they were going to start a life together and move to like a beautiful house, have some kids maybe. And he had it so focused in his mind that this is how the trajectory of his life was going to go that he didn't need to do anything to get there. So he robbed a bank, got a sucker, and left. But you know what was crazy about this? Oh my gosh. So he didn't think that the bomb on his back was real because the people who were conspiring with him told him that it was not real. So he's sitting on the sidewalk. The cops are, um, they've got him handcuffed. He doesn't think that the bomb is real. They don't think that the bomb is real. Starts beeping. Cameras are there. Television, like live news broadcast. The bomb squad gets there too late and his body is just everywhere on TV. <laughs> right? That's so crazy. I know, like I don't even know what to, I'm done, I don't even know what to do. There's a book, um, it's by Malcolm Gladwell, it's called Talking to Strangers. And kind of his whole book is centered around this idea that our judgments of others, our perception of people who do bad things or who might even be really nice, they're not super accurate. There is a study that Malcolm Gladwell talks about in this book where they, um, they team two different categories up. They have a computer generator and they have real life judges. And both of their jobs is to determine from a list of convicts who could reoffend. The computer didn't have a picture or any really information to go off of. They didn't see the people face to face. The judges, they had this bias that they had um, to, towards all of the cases and they had their preconceived notions. When you judge the, um, the problems between the computer and the judges, the computer ended up being right a lot more than the judges were. It's so interesting to me how our quick judgments of others, they're not always accurate, right? And today's villain in the Bible, he really confuses me because he seems like a joker kind of character. His name is Judas. And a lot of you know Judas as the guy who basically started the plot to kill Jesus, right? Here's what we know about Judas for sure. He's one of the 12 friends of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples. So he spent about three years with Jesus, with these friends, just talking to people and ministering to people. He spent three years of his life with Jesus Christ. He was also the treasurer of Jesus' this crew, so he handled a lot of money. And we'll see that as we walk through um, Judas' life. And other than that, we don't know much else about Judas, so we're going to do some speculating today. Does that sound good? Yes. yes. 
Thank you. That sounds great. I don't know about you, but all that I've heard about Judas my entire life is that he was bad. He was bad from the start, bad from the middle, and bad up to the very end. And it all centered around this one action that he had where he went to the authorities because they were looking to hunt Jesus. And he got money for turning Jesus in. And then Judas had a tragic ending to his life. But I think there's more than that. There's not a ton of Bible passages on Judas. The most famous incident is him turning Jesus over to the religious leaders. But here's a passage that we'll start off with. It's in John 12, 1 through 5. And John writes this discourse, and he writes this passage about a situation that happened with a lady and Jesus and his disciples. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one that Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil. It was pure and expensive nard. Mary anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And if you could just picture yourself in this scenario right here, right now, Jesus is lounging on the lazy boy right here, and Lazarus is hanging out on the couch, and there are maybe some kids and some Pharisees. Um, Judas is there. Mary's there. She's got, like, long Rapunzel hair. She's got some, like, vanilla bean shampoo, whatever. It smells really good. And this fragrance is just absorbing all of the air in the room. And she did this for a reason. It's not like... She just dropped her perfume. She did this for Jesus. But then it goes on to say, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, and then they put in parentheses, who was about to betray Jesus. He said, why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So here is this moment where everything smells like vanilla or whatever nard smells like. And Judas kind of has a reality check, and he's like, wait a minute, isn't our job to serve people? Isn't our job to take care of people? Why did she just break that perfume and waste it all over the room? Why couldn't we have used that for our mission? That sounds legit, right? When I've heard this story before, I picture Judas like just always so conceited and um, pessimistic. And I picture him to always point out the negative in all of these situations. But when I read this again, I kind of get his point. I wonder what Judas's background was, what his childhood was like. Because I'm thinking about this pizza bomber guy. Like, what made him think that he needed money to have this relationship with this girl? I'm thinking about Judas. What made him so um, passionate and focused on money? I wonder if Judas grew up really poor. I wonder if Judas had his parents around or if he was an orphan. What if Judas really liked things that he couldn't afford? What if he saw rich religious people um, deny him food or money because they wanted it for themselves? I could ask a bunch of what-if questions, but I think the goal here is to see that Judas is just a person, right? He's just like you and me. John goes on to say, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, um, 
Yeah, we'll just keep going. So John goes on to say, he didn't say this, talking about Judas, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered him, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now that throws a wrench in things because the Bible says that Judas did not care about the poor, but he was a thief. But hear me out. What if he became a thief because he was poor? Like there are so many questions that we can keep asking about Judas. We can ask so many what if questions. But I think the goal here is to just ponder and to dream. What if Judas wasn't a bad guy all of his life? So during this time, the Roman government was not a great moralistic government. They would kill and murder and pillage um, villages. They would abuse people for fun. They would enslave people after they had destroyed their whole lives and all of their towns. They were in it for gaining land and gaining money. And the Jewish people, the Jewish community were targets of this abuse from the Roman government. And the Jewish people, they were fed up with it. They were looking for a savior. They were looking for a leader to help them get out of this mess that they were in. And they think that it's about time. So when Jesus came and when he had been preaching a gospel, a good news, when he had started his campaign speeches, they had thought that he was the Messiah, the leader, the politician that they were looking for. And I think that Judas might have thought that as well. But when you think of a politician, when you think of a leader that's going up against the Roman government, you're not really thinking about the things that Jesus was. I wonder if Judas, after he follows Jesus for three years, is just not excited about his game plan anymore. I wonder if Judas, if he hears all these stories that the chief priests and the religious leaders have taught him since he was born, he gained their trust. They gained his trust. And he could understand where they were coming from. He was learning about a way to see faith and religion and God in a completely different way. And I wonder if Judas had just been so disoriented that he didn't know what to do. And his main goal, what if it was just to be released from the Roman government rule? And I'll tell you right off the bat, Jesus did not plan to wage a war of physicality. There's another passage in the Bible where Judas is pictured. And this is towards um, Jesus' death. He's not excited about Jesus, and he's thinking about turning him in. He goes to the chief priest and he says, hey, I know where Jesus is. I know you've been looking for him. You want to charge him and arrest him for treason. We're going to go to the garden where he's at, where all my friends are at. And the person that I kiss on the cheek is the one who is Jesus. And then they um, argue and they talk about um, a certain sum of money that Judas will get for turning Jesus in. And then it says this in Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans on how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. This is when he was arrested. Then it says, Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. 
So we can stop for a second. We can um, look at this passage and it's almost more disorienting to me to see Judas so bent on delivering Jesus into the hands of the government, having him killed and having him arrested. And now Judas is kind of second guessing what he did. Judas is seeing the humanity of Jesus and also the godliness of Jesus. He's asking, what if I made this big mistake? What did I do? How um, selfish was I being in the moment where I put my own life ahead of Jesus? What if everything that he taught me was right? And Judas, he's focused on money for most of the times that he's mentioned in in the Bible. And the thing that surprises me is that he went to return the money that he was given for the arrest of Jesus. He didn't want the blood money that he earned. And so then Matthew says, Judas threw the money into the temple and left because the religious leaders wouldn't take it. He went away and then he hanged himself. The chief priests they picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot to talk about. And there's a lot of emotions, I think, for Judas and Jesus. In Acts 1.18, it has an interesting end to Judas's life. Matthew said that Judas had hanged himself. And Acts actually says that with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, which I'm assuming it's the same field that Matthew's talking about, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all of his intestines spilled out. So the actual way that Judas died, there are a couple of options, and neither of them are great. I wonder what was going through his head. And all of my life I spent thinking about how terrible this guy was and how awful he was and how he was probably evil from the day that he was born. And that um, if I were in Judas's situation, I would do things totally different. I wouldn't betray him. I wouldn't want money. But when I read what actually happened, man, I feel for the guy. He had to experience immense guilt and immense pressure from both sides. And he ended up not being able to take it I wonder if mental illness had something to do with this. I wonder what he was thinking. Now, 30 pieces of silver is what he was given for um, trading Jesus in. It's about four months of wages. The denarii that he wanted um, from the perfume was about a month's worth of wages. So it's quite a bit of money. It seemed to be a big thing for Judas. It seemed to be his security plan. But at the end, I think he realized that that wasn't the end goal. I wonder if Judas saw Jesus as this ultimate failure to the Jewish community. If he heard Jesus' platform and if he heard what his plan for leadership was, and it wasn't what Judas wanted. Judas, he's probably, honestly, he's probably like 16 to 26, something like that. His brain is probably not even fully formed yet. 
And that changes perspective too, because I work with teenagers. <laughs> I was a teenager at one point, and all of you were too. We can make some weird choices when we're teenagers. There's so many factors to be led into this thing. So Shane Claiborne, he's an, art, um, an author, and he fights for um, social justice issues. He's a Christian, and he has something to say about it, about Jesus's platform. And I think that this might help put things into a little bit more perspective. So he touches on three things that are kind of like normal with the Roman government and the Jewish community. And we're going to go through three of them. So um, basically, in the Jewish culture, you wipe with one hand and you shake hands with another. So you don't use the same hand that you go to the bathroom with as you do when you touch other people. It's a sign of respect. When um, Jesus talks about violence and when he talks about when somebody hits you, he actually says to turn your other cheek and to look at the person who hit you. Now that's kind of weird for somebody to do. In the culture of um, the Jewish community though, if somebody hits you um, with their hand that they don't wipe with and you turn the cheek, you turn your cheek, that means that you're looking straight at them and they have to actually see your humanity. They have to see that you're a person. They have to look into the eyes of a person that they're abusing. In Jewish culture and in Roman government, actually, not Jewish culture, uh, poor people could actually be taken to court um, to get the coat off of their back taken away. If they don't have any money, if they don't have any um, power or supplies or land, they can actually have their clothes taken from them if they owe somebody something. And Jesus references this. He says, when someone drags you to court to sue you for the coat off of your back, just take off all of your clothes and give them to them. And back in the day and now, nakedness is a sign of um, sin. Nakedness is a sign of uncomfortability. And by the act of taking off all of your clothes and giving it to the person who is suing you for, for your coat, you're actually turning the shame towards them because they're the ones that caused you to be naked. Does that make sense? There's another common thing that happened in the Roman government. They didn't have cars. They didn't have horse and buggy all the time. They needed pack mules, these Roman soldiers. And so they would make Jewish community uh, members and just regular citizens, they would make them carry things on their backs. Um, they had to walk at least a mile together. So they would use people as pack mules, basically. Wouldn't pay them, wouldn't do anything for them. And Jesus says, when someone makes you walk a mile, what if you just walked another mile with them? And by saying this, Jesus is actually telling them to make friends with their enemies. He's telling them to talk about their names together, talk about the favorite foods that they like, maybe what they're doing um, on the weekend. So Jesus is not actually physically fighting or asking people to overthrow the Roman government. He's telling people like, hey, you need to love the people who hate you. You need to love the people who are abusing you. And by doing that, you're the one that's actually winning. And that's kind of a hard and confusing concept to understand. Shane Claiborne said this in his book, um, Jesus for President. 
He said that these amazing teachings had to work at the center of these peculiar people. Then we can look into the eyes of a centurion, a Roman soldier, and see not a beast, but a child of God. And then we can walk with that child of God a couple of miles. And then we can look into the eyes of tax collectors as they sue you in court. We can see their poverty and we can give them your coat. We can look into the eyes of the ones who are hardest for you to like and to see the one you love. For God loves good and bad people. Even God doesn't grasp for the knowledge of good and evil, but sends rain to water the fields of both the just and the unjust. That's why enemy love is the only thing that Jesus says makes a person like God. Perfect. I think that Jesus did this for Judas. Because on the Last Supper, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends. They were having a last meal together. And Jesus speaks up and he's telling them what's about to happen. And he says, actually, one of you is going to betray me tonight. And everybody's freaking out like, is it me? Is it me? I don't think it's me. I'm pretty sure I didn't say anything bad. And Judas says out loud, he says, surely it's not me. It's like, you know, when you're like six and you eat a bunch of cookies and your parents ask you if you took the cookies from the cookie jar and you're like, surely it wasn't me. Like, that's how I pictured it in my brain. I think that Jesus could have called Judas out right there in front of all the disciples. He would have had like 11 other people to fight Judas. Judas could have been killed or threatened or anything before Jesus even got arrested. And Jesus, all he said is that you have said it. It feels like Jesus forgave Judas right there on the spot. It feels like Jesus loved Judas so deeply the one who would turn him in that same hour or two. It feels like Jesus loved Judas so incredibly deeply to his core that he forgave him for a terrible, terrible thing. It seems like Jesus loved his friend who then became his enemy and made him his friend again. I think it's pretty incredible. And I think Judas felt that. Oftentimes, in our own stories, we are the hero. And oftentimes, in our own stories, we are also portrayed as the villain. If you were put into Judas's position, after our speculations and dreaming and wondering of what Judas's life might have been like, what would you have done? What leaves my heart just aching is that his response after he turns Jesus in. He feels this remorse. He feels this deep longing and um, desiring to change what he had done. I've felt that before. I felt that guilt and I felt that shame. What would you have done? I love that Shane Claiborne says that God loves good and bad people. And I love that Jesus' platform, his political, social, whatever platform, his platform for leadership, his platform as God, is to love your enemies. That's incredible. It's very hard to do. I want to invite the band up, and as they're coming up, I want to ask you, I feel like every time that I come up here, this is the question that I have to deal with throughout the week. Um, 
but it's important because it's hard for me to do. I want to ask you, who in your life do you enjoy to vilify? Who in your life do you enjoy to make the bad guy in situations? Who's somebody in your life, whether it's a specific person, a specific political party, whether it's a specific leader that we have, whether it's someone in your neighborhood, someone here, someone in your family, who's that person where no matter what they do, they're never going to win with you? Can you just close your eyes and can you think about that person? I have like 12 names in my head. And can you think about, maybe for a second, what their life was like when they were a kid? Could you think about if they also had frosted flakes for breakfast? Could you think about if they felt joy and if they felt pain, if they felt sadness, if they felt healthy if they felt sick. What would it take to love that person? I think as much as I want to blame Judas and as much as I want to vilify Judas, I can see where he's coming from. And that's not me excusing him at all. But I think Jesus, he saw Judas's humanity even the night that he was arrested. And I think Jesus forgave him. And I think that means that I need to do that with my enemies too. And if I'm an enemy to anyone, man, I got some work to do. Let's pray together for our enemies right now. If you have a name of somebody in your head, whether it's a specific person or a group of people. I know I'm going to pray for forgiveness for myself, for vilifying them. And I'm going to pray for strength to um, talk to them and ask their forgiveness. I'm going to pray for peace for myself, that whenever I have anger in my soul, whenever I feel anxiety, that I can take a deep breath and I can remember Jesus' relationship with Judas. And I can say, hey, I gotta love my enemies. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. And it's really hard to love people who we don't like at all. It's really hard to love people who have done bad things to us or to people who we love. Father, I think one of the beautiful things about being a human is that we're all human together. We make mistakes and we have successes, we have failures. God, I ask that you would give us the strength, that you would help us see where we need to forgive others and where we need to ask for forgiveness. God, thank you for having Jesus as a beautiful, beautiful leader for us as a reminder that we don't have to fight with physicality. We don't have to fight with um, intimidation. We can actually fight with love and we can win. 
Thank you for this space. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.